morning. You like that? That was good, right? That was good. I was trying to use my uh, trying to use my spidey sense for that. Uh, good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? All right. So I know that Zan is doing really well. Um, the rest of us were a little questionable at the moment. That's okay. What I would love to do is uh, rather than having y'all repeat that, is just go ahead and get started. To be honest. Um, so. I got married to my wife, Rachel, on Sunday, September 13th, 2015. Best day of my life. It was a beautiful service. It was set on the banks of the San Marcos River uh, at a small but beautiful venue called Zedler Mill in Luling, Texas. I don't know who else might know about Zedler Mill, but it's really nice. We were surrounded by friends and family, and we celebrated after the service well into the evening until it all culminated in us walking down that beautiful tunnel of people that have loved you and have been there for you and are celebrating you and have like little sprinklers and all that kind of little stuff until we finally got to our car and then we drove off to start our new lives together. That was, that was the 15th. Did I take that back? That was the 13th. I, 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 to be fair, she'd be doing that too. I ain't gonna, I, I ain't gonna front and act like it's just me. She'd be getting confused like that as well. From there, we spent a week between Santa Fe, New Mexico, and Estes Park, Colorado, uh, hiking mountains and taking in the views, uh, and then ultimately, you know, just hanging out and enjoying one another. From there, we, we got back, and when we arrived home, we started uh, what is maybe the funnest part about getting married other than the married part. We started opening all the what? All the presents, all the gifts. Okay, now that one I can't let go. All right, because that one wasn't even about you. I just need you. We're going to run that one back. We got back and we started opening all the what? There we go. Started opening all of the presents, knife sets, toasters, lots of toasters, waffle makers, some things that we still use till this day, eight years later, and other things that, if I'm being honest with you, never made it out of the box. But one gift always stood out to me from that time. Interesting, it wasn't a gift from the actual wedding or the service itself, but it was a gift we received our first week back at our church. Our first week back at our church, and it was a small church in San Marcos, Texas called The Springs. Um, a friend of mine named, let's call him Wesley. Wesley approached me. He and his wife were not able to make it to our ceremony, and and though he had made that evident to me before our wedding day, he still felt this need to apologize. And so he came up with all the standard, hey, I'm so sorry I couldn't make it, but man, congratulations. We love y'all. We're excited for y'all, all that kind of stuff. And then he continued on. Catherine and I still wanted to get you guys something. Catherine is his wife. And he handed me a book entitled Lasting Love by pastor and author Alistair Begg. Here's the thing. While I was polite and appreciative externally, after weeks of premarital counseling, several marriage books under my belt during this same time, and with several items still to buy and several things still needed for this new apartment that was now me and my brand new wife's home, internally, I most certainly was not appreciative 
I most certainly was not polite. A book? Right, here's the thing. This brother has been with us through all the premarital stuff. He knows how many books I've done read. He knows all the weeks that we done put into preparing for our marriage. And yet, he also, the man is married. He knows the feeling of getting married and going to your house and being like, look at all the stuff we need. Because somehow between the wife that probably has a lot of things and the guy that has probably lived out of a trash bag for his entirety of his life up until that point, you need all this other stuff. He knows that part as well. And his, his response, his gift is a book. Man. While we may have toasters in abundance, right? He's married, and he knows all the things we need, and he gives us a book. And so that day, I politely thanked him. I took the book home, and I put it on the shelf to gather the dust kicked up from the very lives that it was meant to bless. And it stayed there. You may be asking, how is this the gift that stands out to you? Is it still there? What happened to the book? Right? I'll tell you what happened to the book. No, it's not still there. Because you see, the first couple of years of our marriage were actually really challenging. They were really challenging. Two single children from broken homes. The selfishness present in the first few years of our marriage alone, just between that dynamic of like two single children from broken homes, was enough to make any, any married couple looking like, wow, all right, that's tough. You guys got a lot to, lot to work through here. Now you throw in Rachel's struggles with perfectionism and insecurity and my struggles with anger and insecurity, and you had a recipe for moments of absolute disaster, like moments that were really heavy, moments where we hurt each other, moments where we were really sad, really discouraged, and really frustrated with the situation, but also with each other. And so after a while, with all of my weeks of premarital counseling and the several books that I had read, after a few years, I started looking for resources to continue to help myself grow in this area of being a husband and, and in this area of being married. And as I was Googling books and resources, I stumbled upon what? Alistair Begg's Lasting Love. And right away, I thought to myself, hey, I have that. And trust me, I, I, I'm, not a good, I'm not good at saving money, so it wasn't out of a desire. It was more like, I collected that. I own that. So I jumped out of my chair and I ran to the bookshelf in our bedroom and I started looking through all the books. Nothing. Maybe the other bookshelf in the X room. So I got up and I ran to the other, to the other room and I started looking on the other bookshelf and started going through it. Maybe it's behind some other books. Nothing. And after searching inside for a bit longer, I finally realized, oh, you know what? There's that box in the garage covered in dust with all the old books. And I ran to it. By ran, I mean I walked faster than I normally would. I, I, I walked faster than I normally would over to that box. I opened it, and I started rummaging. And upon rummaging in the dusty box in the garage where all the old books were, I found it. And I sat down, uh, and I opened the book, and I looked at the... I looked at the note on the inside of the cover to Rachel and Josh from Wesley and Catherine. We love you and we pray God uses the contents of this book to bless you both 
in this new adventure. I smiled, obviously, thinking back on my friend, uh, and I began to read the introduction to the book. And as I turned the final page on the introduction, a $10 bill slid out uh, of that final page. And surprised, and quite frankly, uh, a little bit excited, uh, I started to flip through the rest of the book to see where there may be other unforeseen items that I had not expected. And at the end of every chapter, there was another $10 bill, totaling around $100. We pray God uses the contents of this book to bless you both in this new adventure. After years of collecting dust, dust kicked up by the good and the bad of, of the lives, again, this book was meant to bless, Lasting Love by Alistair Begg was finally going to do what he gave it to us to do, which was bless us. Not how I expected it the moment I received it, but in a surprising kind of way. In great wisdom, knowing the road ahead, knowing that there would be high moments, knowing that there would be low moments, knowing that despite all of my weeks of premarital counseling and the several books that I had read and that were under my belt, there would be moments that drove me and my wife to sadness and discouragement and left us with tears running down our face and knowing, like, like with the foresight of a sage giving us a book to say, hey, I want this to bless you now. But more than now, I want it to bless you while you're sitting in that chair looking for help in the future. In many ways, I would argue that the coming Messiah is really, really a similar story. While we may not fully understand it or him, uh, the, the, the story, it's often in the most unappreciated elements of, of him as our Messiah. It's often in the most unappreciated ways of him as our God, him as our friend, that, that we, you know, in his wisdom, I actually want to just say what I wrote, in his wisdom and his ways and his gifts of grace and gentleness that we oftentimes overlook, right? It's in, it's in interacting with those that we get this beautiful vision and experience of him as our Messiah and as our God, right? Today, we're going to continue our sermon series in Advent, which means arrival, to, to help prepare our hearts to celebrate the arrival of Jesus. And this week, we're focusing on how unexpected our Savior truly was. How unexpected he truly was. That like me in this book, sometimes we can look at, and at, the, at, at the surface, at the title page, in the moment that we decide, hey, I'm going to trust him. It doesn't oftentimes feel uh, like he's meeting all the needs that we have and the needs that we want, while in reality, he's setting up these moments to bless us, both where we are and years into the future. And so what we want to do, what I want to do, is we're going to start our time with just reading a passage from Luke 1. And then we're going to work through that for a few minutes. Uh, and I'm going to go ahead and read that right now. And I'm going to invite you to stand to your feet uh, in reverence to these words that many people in this room believe are holy and from God. And when we're done with that, uh, I'm going to go ahead and say, this is the word of the Lord. And I'm going to invite you to say in return, thanks be to God. Okay, so let's go ahead and get started. Man, I want to I talk to him so bad. I just want to let y'all know, I'm, everything inside of me is fighting, making some jokes right now. Uh, 
Man, come on. Thank you, Jesus. All right. So we're going to read Luke 1 together, uh, and then uh, we'll jump into to working through it. Luke 1, 68 through 79 says this. Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in, his, in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our ancestors and remembered his holy covenant. The oath, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, he has given, uh, he has given us the privilege since we have been rescued from the hand of our enemies to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness in his presence all our days. And you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of our God's merciful compassion. The dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you can, you can have a seat. His name will be John, right? These are the words that Zechariah the priest and the father of John the Baptist wrote down when his family asked him, what's his name going to be? I can imagine his hand approaching tablet, papyrus, whatever it is he wrote on, uh, but approaching that tablet, approaching that writing, just his hand shaking uncontrollably. I can just envision it, not because the name itself was so special, not even because he had just had his child, which, which he honestly didn't think he was going to have. Him and his wife, Elizabeth, were already old in age, but rather because of all of the circumstances surrounding this boy who was going to be called John. You see, nine months earlier, while lighting candles in the temple, Zechariah had been visited by an angel named Gabriel. Some of y'all might know this story. In that temple, he told John, the Lord has heard your prayer. He told Zechariah, I'm sorry, the Lord has heard your prayers. Perhaps the prayers for a child, perhaps the prayers for a Messiah to deliver Zechariah's people, the Israelites, from the oppression uh, the oppressive regime of the Romans over them at that time. But whatever prayer Zechariah was praying, the angel Gabriel made sure he knew the Lord's heard those prayers. And he's responded, you and Elizabeth, you're going to have a child, and you're going to name him John, because the Lord's heard your prayers and he's shown you favor. If you know anything about the story, you know Zechariah's response is, in essence, like, okay, dude. Him and his wife, Elizabeth, have been trying to have kids for maybe their entire lives. They were already old in age, and it felt quite literally impossible for them to have kids. In response to this utter lack of belief, despite the fact that an angel is visiting you in the temple of God, which I still, I'm not going to lie, literally is like, come on, Zechariah. You know, like, I'm like, if I'm sitting in my room and an angel randomly comes, it's like, hey, dude, I'm believing everything that thing says, Right? But in response to this utter lack of belief, the angel silences Zechariah to ponder and to look upon as the Lord works in complete silence. And I could imagine from Zechariah's experience what, would have, what this would have been like, to silently continue on with your life only to hear your wife 
look at you and say, hey, I'm pregnant. And I start to wonder back to that moment, was that real? Is it not just like trauma and some kind of weird experience that's left me mute? But was it truly an angel of the Lord that had come to visit me that day to tell me God's heard your prayers? A few months would have passed by, and then all of a sudden, as he starts to prepare for the arrival of their new child, he would have seen his wife Elizabeth's cousin come by. And unbeknownst to them, a young woman, she would have been pregnant as well. And when she came, just on her arriving, he would have heard his wife start to get a feeling like the baby in her stomach was restless and moving around. And as his wife Elizabeth approached her cousin, she would cry out, man, what an incredible day, a blessing to me that the mother of my Lord would come to visit me. And Zechariah probably would have looked in his silence, unable to even vocalize what was going on in his mind, what is happening. And as they talked, he would have looked and heard his wife's cousin, Mary, say that she also was visited by an angel named Gabriel. Remind you, this man is muted in the temple. He doesn't come outside and look at his wife and say, hey, Gabriel visited me. He walks outside and says nothing. But Mary shows up and says, the angel Gabriel visited me. And in Luke 1, 33, Mary says, and he said to me this, he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. And I'm sure at that point, Zechariah would have been looking at this situation, unable to speak, hearing or, or, or just believing now that Gabriel had visited him, that the Lord had heard their prayers, that he was responding, and now he had visited this woman, his wife's cousin, and now she had shown up at his doorstep, his baby inside of the womb of his wife is celebrating and moving all about. His wife's cousin is saying, Gabriel has visited me too, and he said that my son will be the son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he would have surely been looking around going, no, what's happening right now? What is happening here? And the few last months would have gone by, I'm sure, in the silent insecurity and expectation and excitement and fear that would have been running all through Zechariah, waiting in silence to see what was going to happen, only for his baby to come out and for them to say, your wife is saying that he's going to be named John, but no one in your family has that name. So we're asking you now in sign language for whatever reason, what's his name? And trembling, his hand would have approached that tablet to write down his name will be John. And the Bible says that in that instant, his mouth was opened, his voice was restored, and he cries out the first line of today's reading, blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. That entire song that we read at the first, how God had visited us, how he provided strength, how he provided salvation, how now John's son is going to be the forebear and to take us and to prepare our hearts for God, right? That was the song that came from the mouth of a man who had waited nine months in silence, observing and seeing how the Lord was working and moving, unable to say, I think this is happening. But finally, after nine months of excruciating waiting, after writing his name will be John, 
his mouth is opened and he cries out, the Lord has responded. The Lord has provided. In this song, he says he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David. And while these types of sayings don't carry the same weight they did in Zechariah and Jesus' time, these were important words for the Israelites. They communicated strength and power, but they specifically pointed to King David, Israel's greatest king. And King David, the recipient of a promise that one of his descendants would sit on his throne forever. Just that language, the throne, I mean, the, the horn of David, we see it used across the Old Testament in unique and powerful ways. This isn't going to be on the screen, but I want to encourage you to listen to me. In 1 Samuel 2.10, it says, Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder in the heavens against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give power to his king. He will lift up the horn of his anointed. In Psalm 132.17, it says there, I will make a horn grow for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed one. And this seems to be exactly how Zechariah sees this moment. Because when we go to verse 69 and 70, in Zechariah's own song, in Zechariah's own prayer, he says, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by mouth from his holy prophets in ancient times. This is exactly what David, this is exactly what Zechariah sees. When he sees the Lord working, when all that anticipation and excitement and, and all that stored up treasure of what God is doing is happening, all Zechariah's thinking is God is fulfilling his promises. God is responding to our pain and the darkness of our lives, and he's responding with the Messiah who's going to lead us out of this darkness. He sees the Messiah in his prayer. He sees the Messiah in Mary's stomach. He sees the, the precursor to the Messiah in his wife's womb. This is exactly how Zechariah sees everything shaping out, that everything he had heard in his entire life, all of the moments of hope that were shared between him and his family as they considered the darkness and the difficulty that they were going through, right, was culminating in this moment. But that begs the question, friend, what exactly was Zechariah expecting? What exactly was Zechariah expecting? Because what he definitely wasn't expecting was the current kings of Israel who were basically just Roman-affiliated judges over the area that Rome controlled known as Israel, but labeled king in the least weighty version of the word, if I'm being honest. But he definitely wasn't expecting for Mary's son to be strung up on a cross and to be hung like a criminal, criminal next to two other criminals, humiliated, lifeless, body broken, with a, with a wood plank labeled King of the Jews above him, as though he and all of his people's struggles are being mocked all over again at Golgotha. That's not what he was expecting. He didn't expect what we have in terms of the vision that we have that's been shaped by centuries of interpretation. You and I, when we think of a Messiah, let me be real with you, you and I think of someone who loves us, who cares for us. We sing songs about his salvation. We sing songs about his presence. But for Zechariah and for every single person that was around Zechariah and that lived in Zechariah's time, just a few months prior 
to Jesus being born, absolutely none of them would have had that vision of a Messiah. Not a single one. I read this week in preparation that there was not a single writing prior to New Testament writers that described Jesus the Messiah as one who would suffer, as one who would be weak, as one who would give himself, as one that would lay down his life. They all imagined and anticipated a redeemer and a savior who would look like his father David, who would come and would conquer, who would restore, who would push back the enemies who were surrounding them, who would push back the enemies who had oppressed them, who would push back the enemies that made them feel the weight of injustice and the darkness of the world. And they looked at those circumstances and they assumed truly the Messiah is going to set us free from darkness. He's going to rise up like an incredible president, like an incredible military leader, and he's going to lead us out of this place and into a new way of life. And then, and then, and then Mary's son is hanging on a cross, lifeless, and all of it gets turned upside down. What's happening here? What's happening there? And, and here, I, I, want you to be, I want you to hear me. Jesus is truly reinventing, like he's, re, he's revolutionizing the vision of a Messiah. And it's not that we imp, like, imply that. That happens in the text, right? We see that this reinterpretation of a Messiah happens starting with Jesus. At the end of the book of Luke, right, with Jesus uh, appearing to two disciples on the road to Emmaus, he actually says this. And we see this tradition of re-understanding a Messiah start right here in the Bible. In Luke 24, 25 through 27, Jesus speaking to them says, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. This is after Jesus has died and is resurrected. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer those things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. That was Jesus. Jesus was having to look at his Messiahs and look at his disciples and say, that's not what this looks like. I'm not who you assume. Because up until then, the Israelites had experienced pain and suffering and trauma. And hear me, that influenced precisely what they were hoping for. Their pain, their suffering, their trauma influenced precisely what they were hoping for. They felt anger and a desire for justice that verged on revenge, and they desired nothing more than for Messiah to show up and to meet their need for vengeance, strike down their opponents, and to see them suffer the way they had suffered. And so the vision that they had built was a strong man on a horse piercing the sides of every enemy of God's people. They had felt uh, oppression and desired freedom. And so they imagined and they hoped for and they envisioned a savior who would come and would actively set, cast away the oppressors of their people, freeing slaves and servants alike, restoring them to a place of, of hope and, and esteem and dignity and respect. They felt failure and longed for success. And so they envisioned a Messiah who would come and unlike the constant failures of their forefathers would exemplify what it looked like to serve God, to love God, to follow God, to be perfect, and for God to bless that with political and, and, and uh, geographical might and blessing. That's what they envisioned. 
They had very real experiences that opened their eyes to very real needs and that built expectations of a very real Messiah who was going to make all those things right. That's what we're reading when we read Zechariah. That's what we're reading when those two disciples on the road to Emmaus are saying, they said there was a Messiah, but he was crucified in Israel, in Jerusalem. It's not just that they're saying, oh man, we had a good one. Like, like staunch Democrats and Republicans being like, we had a good president. But now the other side is in, so now we don't have a good president. It wasn't the same as that. It was, it was the weight of generational trauma and pain and anger and resentment of oppressed people for hundreds of years growing in anticipation that perhaps this carpenter, perhaps this simple man, who showed up on the scene and started doing amazing things, who displayed wisdom beyond the scope of what anyone could imagine and somehow displayed power that we could only associate with God himself, perhaps he was going to be the answer to every ache of our heart and every hope that seems unfulfilled. That's why we see these people and there is such a disappointment when Jesus goes to the cross. That they would have thought that man on the cross means that God hasn't hurt us. That man on the cross means that God doesn't hear us. It means that our tears are still waiting on a redeemer. It means that our, our endless nights being awake are still waiting for him to respond. That's what they would have seen. He would have gone right back into generations of trauma and disappointment. What they didn't expect, though, is that God had heard those cries, that he did see those tears. And so rather than sending a king or politician, he himself enters into our story, he himself, to respond by visiting and providing, as Zechariah says in the introduction to his song, to restore the world, to provide forgiveness and restoration, to restore relationships and to bring a wholeness that doesn't gratify vindictiveness or anger or revenge, but rather actually frees our hearts in order to love and to restore the world around us. One that didn't make God a picture on a wall like a president we admire, but rather made God a friend, a brother, and a redeemer we rely on in our most difficult moments. They didn't expect that, but that's what he provided. For many in Zechariah and Jesus' day, this idea didn't make, abs it made absolutely no sense. But I would argue, and I want you to listen to me, I would argue that for many of us, this doesn't make sense to us either. We don't always understand what kind of savior Jesus is. We don't understand why there's a promise to restore everything in time in his return, and yet there's still so many heart-wrenching moments around us now. We don't understand it. And then like the Israelites, we look and say, I thought there was supposed to be a horn from the throne of David. I thought you were going to take all of our trauma and all of our pain and all of our anger. I thought you were going to take all of our difficult moments and all of our tears and you were going to bind them up and you were going to take them away. Where are you? What's happening? Why don't you do that? What kind of redeemer are you? What kind of savior are you? 
While I know he desires justice and restoration, and he's promised that he will provide it. The thing is, friend, when it comes to you, he doesn't want to just make things right in your life and send you on your way. Because that's how all of the pain and trauma happens again. Rather, he wants a relationship with us, one that creates new life based on his presence with us instead of his gifts to us. And the thing is, that's hard for us sometimes. That's hard for you sometimes. That's hard for me sometimes. Because it means that instead of just making difficult moments in your life easy and sending you on your way, instead of that, he enters into those difficult moments with you. He cries with you. He mourns with you. He lays up unable to go to sleep for nights and nights with you. That he enters into that pain and sits there with you in compassion and in mercy and and in love and in grace. That's what it means for him to be the type of Messiah he is. It means that it's difficult to to understand because instead of just changing you in the area that you fail in over and over and over again, he extends grace and embraces you like a loving and forgiving father, welcoming you back time and time and time and time again, showing and displaying his love and compassion and care for you. It's difficult to understand because instead of just making the difficult relationships in your life smoother, he steps in and he says, I'll be the father to the fatherless. I'll be the friend to the friendless. I'll be hope for the hopeless. I'll be a, a present friend in need. That, that's his vision, that in the very midst of your heartache, he would be a friend, he would be kind, he would be present, that it's so hard to understand because so often we're saying, I don't want you, I just want uh, this situation or circumstance in my life to be better, while Jesus is saying to us, I'll make that better, but all I want is you. Here's the thing, friend. Scripture never says the redemption of the world is God's treasure. It says that you're God's treasure. It doesn't say that everything restored is God's work of art. It says that you're God's work of art. It doesn't say that heaven is going to be beautiful because he's going to make trees that much better and there will be no war. It says that Revelation communicates this idea that heaven is heaven because he's with you and you're with him. And that's what makes it heaven. Justice isn't even God's treasure. You're God's treasure. Making things right isn't God's treasure. You're God's treasure. The Messiah didn't come that you would somehow be different than the person that you are. He's come to be with you. He's come to spend time with you. He's come to be joined to you, for you to be his and for him to be yours. And through that joining, through that presence, things are made right. Justice comes about, right? The restoration of the world takes place. But the Messiah didn't come to simply make things right and look at you and say, okay, now it's right, so go ahead and keep living. He came in order to be with you because the goal has always been to be with you. The moment God made you, he didn't say, let's, let's set this rat out on a, on a test course to see if he can get it right. He made you to know you. He made you to love you. He made you to stay with you. He made you to join himself to you. He made you in order to be with you in every good moment. He made you to celebrate with you. He made you to be present when things are sad and difficult. He didn't make you in order to try and see if he could make the world a little bit better. 
He's going to make the world better. He made you in order to be with you because he loves you and because he cares for you. He came into the world to save the world. That doesn't mean to save the planet. It means to save you. And if you know what, if we can get together and make the ecosystem a little better, that's great. God wants us to steward the world around us. He wants us to take care of things. But the goal of redemption, the goal of the gospel is not so you can look around and go, the world is better. It's so that you can see and savor the presence of a God that made you, loves you, knows you, sees you, hears your prayer, is present with you, and is, is here right now to love you and take care of you. That's the vision of the gospel. That's the vision of the gospel. The Savior he is isn't the one that came to do it and send us on our way. He's a Savior that came to be a king, but also came to be a friend and came to be a brother. He didn't come to make you perfect or the world perfect. He came to be with you and by being with you through his presence to make all things right. That's the point here. That's the point, friends. That's the point of today. That's the point of why we're here. That's the point of why you're here. Right? I, w- I want to tell you something. God, I just. Some of us in here, you and me, you walk through that door out there. You walk through that door hoping that sitting in this blue chair in this decorated cafeteria would somehow, through some miracle, make you a better person. And you came in here with the weight that thinking you being a better person would make you more worthy for this, more worthy for that, would make you more acceptable to your parents, would make you a better wife or husband, would somehow get you the things you want or make you worthy of the things that you want. When in reality, you walk through those doors to sit in these blue chairs in this decorated cafeteria to engage with the one that loves you exactly where you are. That's what you're here to do. You're here to meet with a God who sees you and who overwhelmingly and infinitely loves you just where you sit in that chair, that longs to be with you, longs to connect with you, has literally gone to the cross in order to restore you to himself. And through connecting with him, that's where all the promises come out. That's where all the other stuff comes from. But the point of you being here, sitting in the blue chair in the decorated cafeteria, has very little to do with you being a better person. It has everything to you. It has everything to do with you having a God who deeply loves you and who longs to be with you. So if you're coming in and asking, God, I want to live a life that looks like it honors you. Friend, the key is not how can I become a better person. If that's the first question you're asking, I want to, I want to be honest with you. You're asking the wrong question first. I hope you ask that question at some point. I'm trying to ask that question, but that's not the first question. I want to know you. The first is the starting point. I want to be known by you. I want to connect with you. I want you to be my God, for me to be your son, for me to be your daughter. That's the first place. I would, if I was going to put it in a sentence, I'd put it like this, that truly living out God's redemption requires knowing the Messiah Jesus is, not the Messiah we demand him to be, because it requires living in his presence. It requires knowing him. 
and being with him. Uh, today, friend, I, my deepest desire for us is to do that first thing on that sign over there, and that's connect with God. I want, I want to make it crystal clear. We have empowered volunteers to come here, and I'm grateful for them. I told them how grateful I am for them this morning. We've asked people to be here. We drove cars. You got dressed. I got dressed. We did all this. I ain't going to lie to you. We ain't set this up. This was a school. <laughs> it looks great. Shout out to her, right? But we did all this not because we just simply wanted to gather together with you, not because we wanted to make a great social club, not because we wanted to grow a church, not because we even wanted to serve a city. We did this. We lined up these chairs and set up a table and set up speakers because the single aim of my heart is that I would sit here in those blue chairs in a cafeteria decorated as best as we can and we would connect with the God that made me and loves me and you would connect with the God that made you and loves you because if that's what you get from this cafeteria, you will walk out living out a life of redemption and renewal and restoration because that's where that starts. It's not where it finishes. God didn't invite you here today so that you could become a better person and then he'd go out with you. He invited you here today so that you could realize and recognize how deeply he loves you so that you would walk out with him and that he would be with you in every step of your life from this point on. That's the whole purpose of today. And I'm going to live on that hill. I'm going to die on that hill because you're here. I've invited you here. Whoever has invited you here has invited you here for that reason as well. And I would be sad. I'd be sad if we left here today without me having railed against your brain for 40 minutes telling you how deeply God loves you how deeply he cares for you, that he would arrive in the person of Jesus, bear the darkness and weight of our sin and the darkness and weight of, of uh, the world that we experience all just so that he could be with you. I would, I would do an injustice if I did not rail on that point today as we set up a tree and put up some flowers and decorate some boxes in order to celebrate the arrival of the king who sees you and loves you and wants to be with you, I would be saddened and disappointed in myself if I didn't spend 40 minutes railing to you that the tree, the gifts, and everything else points to a God who doesn't want to come here to receive from you, but wants to be with you. That he receives worship not as a demand, but, but as a response to an incredible amount of love that he showers onto us every time we're here. That's the point of this gathering. That's what I want to end us with. I don't really have a practical application today. I just know that oftentimes we come with a demand. Make this thing right. God's promised to do that. Make me better. God's promised to do that. Make things different. He's promised to do that. He's going to do it. From here to when he doesn't, the point is to be with him and to enjoy him and to connect with him. And I want to invite us into that today. And so we're going to take a couple of minutes at the end here to just connect with the Lord. And here's what that means. It means that I want to invite you to do two things. Some of us are on different places of the spectrum. That's okay, right? First thing that we're going to do is I want to invite you to take a second to what we call meditate on the Lord. 
What does that mean? It means that we're going to be quiet. I take that back. There's definitely going to be background sounds of some kind. Um, and then I want to invite you to close your eyes and to meditate on God. Think about his kindness. When those intrusive thoughts come in and you start feeling like you're unworthy to be here, fight it with the good news of what we just talked about. He loves you. He ain't asking you to be something you're not today in order to love you today. That's not the point. He's asked you to come here to connect with you because he loves you. He wants to be with you. Meditate on it. Think about it. From there, all of the other parts, you can bring those in. You can bring in your struggles. You can bring in your challenges. You can bring in all the other issues. But I want to encourage you first to meditate on them, to think about them. And then from there, we're going to take communion. We're going to sing a couple of songs. And for those of us that feel a little uncomfortable during that meditation time, I hear you. I understand you. I ain't you. I'm sitting quiet for the next hour. But I know not everybody there. That's okay. Uh, for those of us that, that are maybe not quite there, you want to actually, like, do something that you can feel. We're going to take communion where we celebrate the body and blood of Jesus. And we believe spiritually connected. And then we're going to sing some songs. And I want, if, if it is true that the king of the world came to be with you, to love you, to care for you, I want to encourage you to sing with all your heart. I'm going to. Let me rephrase that. I'm going to sing with all my heart. You do you. Okay? Because, again, I'm here to beg you to connect with God. But whether you do it or not, I'm here to do it. I'm going to do that whether you do or not. And so we're going to take a second, be quiet, connect with him, and then we'll continue on. Father, thank you so much for your presence. I thank you when we were lost in darkness and left trauma and pain and sadness of our own lives. A light came into the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. That those of us who were discouraged, you were the encourager of our souls. Those of us that are down, that are downtrodden, that are hurting, you are our restore those of us that are filled with joy you celebrate with us thank you that every single one of us no matter where we where we are or where we've been or where we're going that you out of a deep and abundant love for us have committed yourself to us that we are not alone that you are with us that we're not alone you are our god that we are not alone you are our savior that we are not alone you are our brother that we are not alone you are our friend. We are not alone. You are our Father. And so, Father, spark our hearts for you. Help me to love you overwhelmingly. Help us to love you, to want to think on you, to want to spend time with you. Thank you that even despite our tendencies to say, I want everything but you, you respond with us. You respond to us with the truth that, you, that we're all you want, that you see us as treasure, that we are your treasure. Thank you, God. Help us to love you. And thank you for your love for us. It does not waver and does not change. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen.